0: This is the Baltimore Annapolis Psychotherapy Podcast. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. And now, here's Laura Reagan,
1: LCSWC, with today's episode. Hi, welcome back to the Baltimore Annapolis Psychotherapy Podcast. Today, I'm very excited to be interviewing... Dr. Stephen Brownlow, who's a psychologist in the Austin, Texas area, who has a coaching, consulting, and therapist training program he created called Adept Psychology. So, Steve, thank you so much for being here with me today.
0: Oh, thanks for having me, Laura. I'm I'm really glad to be here.
1: Yeah, I'm really glad you could do it. So, um, I've met you through um, Facebook groups and Um, mutual coaching programs that we're in. And I have to say, even up to today, I really didn't completely understand what adept psychology is. So I'm really hoping that you can explain more about it so that our listeners can get the picture of what you're offering. I think it's a pretty special thing.
0: Okay, thanks. Uh, Yeah, I, I think it's pretty nice. (laughs) Um, so ADEPT, first of all, it's, it's an acronym. It, it stands for, um, applied dynamic emotional processing theory. And really there's sort of a story about how I came up with that, that word. Um, I was trying to sit down one day and figure out what it was that i could call what i do because you know i mean there's emotion focused therapy and there's cognitive behavior therapy and there's acceptance and commitment therapy and there's you know all these different things and so i was trying to figure out what it was that i did and i and it was like emotion therapy and it's like well no that's not quite right. And so I thought, well, what is it about emotions? I'm really look at it. And and I realized it was emotional processing was really the heart of what I do. And so it was like, oh, it's emotional processing therapy. It's EPT. Well then I started thinking about EPT and it very quickly I realized that EPT forms two words. You could be either adept or inept. <laughs> and I didn't want to be inept and I didn't want anybody else to call me inept. And so I decided I'd better go for adapt. And so then I well, D was dynamic and then A I struggled with. I actually had to look through a dictionary trying to find a good A word. And but applied was was right. And so that's how it became applied dynamic emotional processing theory and it's theory because it's applied you can't have applied therapy i don't think it'd be applied theory but that's true because it is theoretical i guess in some ways so so that's how i came up with the the name um, and and it really that's where it started out as is sort of focusing on how people process their emotions because i don't think We really understand that very well. Mm -hmm. Um, I think as therapists, we're not trained in that very well. We're trained with a bunch of theory that has all been pretty much disconfirmed by the research. And so I thought, well, let's start with the research and maybe come up with a theory that, that all the research fits. Let's start with that. And so I kind of... That's how I started.
1: That's really cool. And thinking um, about how the acronym, you know, applied turns out to be perfect in my mind, because um, thinking how it seems to be an experiential process and, you know, that is applying what you know to you. So I think that's really, I mean, you're, and I'll give you a chance to talk about this more, but it sounds like what you're doing is you're training therapists how to work with their clients to help them process their emotions, but using the therapist's process of, of um, processing their own emotions to do that.
0: That's, that's correct. And it, there, there are a couple of different There are a couple of different reasons of that, I guess. One is that I think my sense of things, at least, is you can't take people where you haven't already been yourself. Mm -hmm. And so you really, you can't lead somebody by telling them, okay, go off in front of me. You really have to, be there yourself. And part of it is that you really understand how, because what ADEPT is about is a theory, is really a, a, it's really a theory of how people are put together. And I will say that in terms of just coming up with a theory, I think everybody has theories about how people are put together. But the difference with ADEPT is that I didn't want to start with a bunch of assumptions. I wanted to start with research. Hmm. And at some point you have to, if you read enough research and I've read, I don't know. At one point I had a a box in my garage that was like, it it had, it was big enough to put four Coleman coolers in Hmm. It, it. And that thing was, it was entirely full of research articles that I'd copied. And I could basically seal the top of it up. That was that's kind of how much I had to read when I was doing my my doctorate. And um, part of what I really because what I really wanted to understand was not how people think people are put together, but how are people really? What does the research show about how people are really put together? And what does the research show about what is really effective when people change, and how people get stuck, and and how to get them unstuck? And the research is pretty fragmented, and it because people look at much smaller questions than that. But at some point you have to kind of spin all of this together into an overarching framework. And it's like, oh, I think this, if, if I see how all these pieces fit together, right, then this is the pattern. And then you go out and test the pattern. And so that's mm-hmm. what I've tried to do in, in terms of coming up with a framework, but to answer your question, yes, it's, it's very much experiential because I want to, Therapists, it's not important that therapists understand how people work as much as it's important that they really feel it in their own body how this stuff works. Because then they're going to be much better able to lead their clients to having those same sorts of feelings in those same sorts of deep understandings, which is really what the change is about.
1: Yeah. And I couldn't agree with you more with your statement that you can't take people where you haven't already been yourself. Um, I know as a therapist, um, I guess as I was learning, Uh, you know, not that I'm like there and I'm the be all end all, but as I was learning, I, you know, there were certain points where I would get to with a client, we would be working through the process. And then I would be thinking, why can't they go from here to there? Like, why aren't they, what's missing? And I think what I didn't know that was missing was whatever I didn't understand about myself and, what I wasn't feeling within myself. So I couldn't help them feel it without not knowing what it was. So I think, you know, when you do training, that's experiential for me, it's been deeply impactful and made shifts in myself and in, in what's happening in the therapy room, because, um, you know, you just don't know until you feel it yourself.
0: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think this, when I said it's emotional processing, it really, it really is. I think where we get stuck is emotional. We tend to look at things as therapists. We're taught to look at, at things in other ways. We're taught to look at people's thinking or their behavior or their relationships or perhaps their physiology or their motivation in most of the theories that we have have been about one or more of those things Mm -hmm. and the one thing that really connects all of those together is emotion emotion really connects all of those and emotion really has a it's a two-way causal relationship between emotion and each of those things where if you change the behavior then you change the emotions or if you change the emotions you change the behavior for instance Mm -hmm. and what one of the things i noticed very early on is that we really didn't have any good theories that centered on emotion and it was because nobody really understood emotion very well and so that was one of my first big tasks self-appointed I guess I kept (laughs) looking around for somebody else to figure it out and nobody else seemed interested or didn't (laughs) seem to know where to start and I wasn't sure where to start but I just realized if if somebody needs to do it and nobody's doing it, then I guess that means I have to do it. And so that was that was sort of where I started out with. And I've discovered as I, the further into it I've gotten, the more I've discovered that that was, I had the right intuition to begin with. That really is the easiest focus for changing a lot of things, at least for me. Other people have other focuses.
1: Yeah, well, I agree with you about that. Um, and that's the hardest part. We can think. We can think real well. We can explain and understand and teach our clients and they can understand. And, I, uh, you know, for me, working with um, people who have usually childhood trauma, um, they're understanding how their trauma relates to the way they feel or the way they think they feel. But when they actually try to notice what's happening with their bodies, it's numb, you know, cut off, you know, no sensation. And so it's all in the head, but not getting below the neck. You did say they have to feel it in their body, but I wasn't sure if you meant like, somatic resourcing.
0: I don't put it in those terms. One of the things we try to do a lot with with those kinds of emotions, particularly is focus them in the body and not just where are they, but what do they feel like? Mm -hmm. Uh, That's, that's actually kind of an advanced technique. I'm going to, I want to change what I'm this a little bit though, because I want to I want to talk about what you were saying cuz I think it's kind of interesting. Okay. First of all, I, let me kind of say how the way I consider trauma and one of the things that we have to do, the way that emotions are put together, they they rely on the pain system, they rely on the stress system. Those those two systems were already in place really they they underlie emotions one of the things about about stress is that if you don't regulate stress it'll kill you. Yeah. I mean we know that. Chronic stress is the leading health problem in the world today. And and really if you don't believe that think about all the diseases that are connected to chronic stress.
1: Yeah.
0: It's really pretty much everything that kills people over the age of 50. Um, you know, heart attacks and and strokes and high blood pressure and you name it, yeah. um, diabetes, osteoporosis, all of those are stress diseases. Mm-hmm. And so we have to regulate that. And so because emotions are built on the stress system, you have to regulate your emotions. To me, trauma is any any experience is going to be traumatic if it's if you don't have the capacity to regulate it when it happened if you have a an adult there to help you regulate it then it's not going to be traumatic if they do a good job mm-hmm. if you're a little bit older and it happens and you can regulate it adequately it's not going to be traumatic it may be troubling but it's not going to be traumatic If you're a child and the trauma is that you are, uh, as an example, you're sexually abused by your uncle and your uh, mom doesn't want to believe it and your dad's not there and your uncle tells you that if you tell anybody he's going to kill you, that's not going to get regulated.
1: Right.
0: You're just stuck with that. And so that emotion doesn't leave. When you say, okay, you can't connect that emotion to anything below the neck, I think part of what happens a lot of times is that the person can't detect that emotion because it's become so ubiquitous below the neck that it just doesn't feel different. Mm-hmm. If they're, they're, it's sort of frozen in place and and they do different things to defend against it. You know, Reich talked about body armoring and all, all that kind of stuff. And we know a lot about body postures and that kind of stuff and and people doing things to distract themselves and keep themselves from feeling certain things. But when those emotions are experienced once once we've experienced those things and we haven't regulated them it's not like they just go away they're there pretty much forever and until we do the work to resolve them and regulate them and that's a lot of what the emotional processing piece is because there's it doesn't have to be a big trauma like that life is full of all sorts of I guess, small T traumas, relationship mm-hmm. ruptures, uh, the kinds of things that lead us to feel that we're not worthwhile, that we're unlovable, that we are unworthy. And, and those are the kinds of things that that cumulatively cause an awful lot of the suffering in the world. What's so special about Hero Bread's
1: soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low, net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Therapists, we've all had that moment. You wake up in the middle of the night. Oh my gosh, did I do my notes? Well, you don't have to worry about that anymore when you use therapy notes. Therapy notes makes it easy to write your notes, get them done quickly, but thoroughly. My group practice has used therapy notes for six years and everyone always finds it easy to use. But the best thing is if you do need help, you can call their customer service number and a person answers the phone. And anytime I've ever had to use it, which is maybe three times in the past six years, my issue has been resolved easily with a cheerful demeanor in 15 minutes or less. So I highly recommend Therapy Notes. And don't forget, go to therapynotes.com and use promo code chat to get two free months. That point you just made made me want to ask you, to kind of bring it back to what you were saying about how people are put together. You told me something when we were chatting before we started recording about um, when people are born a certain way. Can you talk about that?
0: Yeah, sure. I think there's a, and I'm going to say, I didn't start out with this as an assumption, but it's become an assumption especially more recently because I've realized it's the only way to really tie a lot of the data together. The assumption I'm going with at least at the moment is that when people are born, they they're born expecting things to be different than they are. They're born expecting to, uh, be loving people and to be born into a community of loving people and that they, they'll be free to love people and other people will feel free to love them. And the love will just flow naturally back and forth and that everything, because of that, everybody will feel good and they'll cooperate and they'll do all of those kinds of things. And we all know that that, isn't the way the world is right now. Part of it is that people do get abused, they do get traumatized, they do get rejected. Um, a lot of times, though, what I find is that it's much smaller than that. It's 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 sort of little micro ruptures where the kid comes up to mom and is all excited because they just drew something and they want mom to see it. But mom's busy cooking dinner. And if she doesn't deal with this right now, dinner's going to burn. And so she puts the kid off for a few minutes and says, you know, I'll be there, but just don't, don't you see I'm busy. I'll be there in a few minutes. And the kid then, it doesn't have the the ability to contextualize that. And it, it's just, I was expecting to be loved and I got something different. I got put off. I got, I got shunted to the side. Mom cares about dinner more than me. Mom cares about little sister more than me. Mom cares about whatever more than me. And when you're like a year old, you don't have the cognition to really understand that. You just understand that it hurts. You know, by the time you're about three and a half or four, you have the cognition to sort of begin to tell stories about that. And the story that people tell themselves about that is, there's something wrong with me. I'm unlovable. That if people really understood just how unlovable I am, then they would hate me, they would abandon me, nobody would love me. And so I have to keep all of that under wraps, I have to act like somebody different than who I really am. And, and they give themselves, they spin these all these stories. And we know that those stories aren't true, when we see them in other people, but we all convince them ourselves that they're true about us.
1: And when you believe that deep down inside, it's going to be running the show all the time behind the scenes.
0: Yeah. Well, but what happens is that people, at least the people that I've seen and other therapists may see people differently or see different kinds of people. But the people that I've seen in therapy, typically when they come, a lot of times their issues are around, around control they're around controlling themselves or trying to control other people um most family stuff is around control i think you know they want somebody wants to control somebody else because they don't they're making the family look bad or they're making the family feel certain ways whatever But I think individually, there's a lot of that. I'd be happy if only she fill in the blank. And so there's a control battle going on. When you get past that, then people start realizing that the reason they want to control people is because they're afraid that they're going to get abandoned a lot of times. But when you get past abandonment, that's really a defense, too. It's really it's not about abandonment so much because you wouldn't be afraid of being abandoned if you weren't already afraid that the person was going to realize that you were unlovable and just pick up and leave
1: yeah
0: and so there's a again there's a big piece of emotional processing in that because like I'd said before about trauma it's really the same this is something that You start picking up about the same time you pick up stranger anxiety, which is depending on the child anywhere from maybe five months to 10 months. Average is usually about nine, but that's about when people start, they start understanding these sensations. They don't understand them, but they understand that they're having these sensations and they're painful and they don't like them because they're not feeling loved the way that they think that they should be. At nine months old, I'm pretty much by definition, you don't have the capacity to regulate that. You can't really put that in order. And so that's something that you have to do as an adult. But most adults are scared to death to do it. They don't want to get anywhere close to it because it's painful and they're afraid that people are going to find out and their worst fears are going to be realized and they're going to die. And that's pretty much a story they told themselves when they were little. And when they were little, maybe it was true. And I don't think all of that was true. But the part about about being vulnerable enough to die may have been true when you were really small, but as an adult, that's not true anymore.
1: Right.
0: And so there's just, there's a lot of work to do to really examine that and, and realize that that's what you think is your enemy, what you think is your, this horrible part of you is really, in some ways the best part of you it's the the loving part it's the part that wants to be loving and wants to be loved and wants to trust people and wants to cooperate wants everybody to just get along <laughs> and and so but it's it's hard to get people to go there and as a therapist you can't get people to go there If you haven't been there yourself, if you're sort of at the stage of, well, things feel bad, but I'm going to cope with them, I'm going to accept them, I'm going to hope that things get better, which is all good therapy, Um, it, it doesn't it doesn't change things because to change things, we have to go back to the beginning and we have to sort of reintegrate that part and learn to love it. And if it didn't feel loved all the time, when we were a year old, two years old, that's okay. We can love it now. And that's, and we can let other people love it now, but other people can't love it now unless we expose it to them and give them a chance to love it now. And and that's that's the scary part for most people.
1: Yeah, I think especially if you don't love that part of yourself, exposing it so someone else can is got to be the riskiest thing you can imagine. Because if you are that, you know, if you can't even love it, <laughs> then how would, how would you believe someone else could?
0: And there's a, yeah, that's true. And as a, as a therapist, there are, there are techniques. Um, there are things that you can do that help people do that that help people feel more comfortable so they will divulge that and and will pr- bring that into the session and and allow you to love that allow themselves to risk the fact that you might not but all the technique in the world doesn't any good if you have faced your own problems and your own issues and around that because if you're so defensive that other people's pain scares up your pain, then you're never going to let them get close enough to it. You, You really can't take people where you haven't been yourself. You have to have some courage yourself and and you have to you really have to go way past courage you have to really learn to love that part of yourself and learn to love that part of other people
1: so how does adept psychology help therapists with that
0: I would there's there's two, sort of two tracks in this. There's there's sort of the how are people put together track and and that's theoretical and that's there's a training program for that. There's actually a couple of training programs. There's sort of a how are people put together training and and there's a now that we understand how people are put together, how do we develop some technique to um, actually help people to get in touch with that and make some changes, which is more of an advanced training. But that's on one side. But on the other side, there's really a lot of it is very experiential. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of coaching and uh, and later supervision. Once people have have started to really integrate them. It, the coaching is really about how to get in touch with that yourself. It's And like I say, it's very experiential. You sort of march people through a lot of this process themselves and help them uh, discover sort of where they've where they've gotten stuck and where they've gotten off track and things that they've convinced themselves are true that aren't true. And how that's holding them back, it's not so much arguing with their conclusions. It's really getting to the spot where they can feel this stuff and deal with this stuff and understand it and experience it, and but can recontextualize it and understand, oh, this is what actually happened this is what I always thought happened because I sort of made up this story when I was three. But as I look back at it now, this is what was really going on, which re-regulates all of that stuff and frees up a whole lot of ability to do other stuff. Because as you, as you, as you regulate the emotion the then all the defenses, the other emotions, the, the, weird relationship patterns the defensive pretense that we all put on doesn't have any point anymore and so it just sort of people can drop it and they typically do drop it they start it's like wait a minute if this is true and this is true then there's no reason for me to do this anymore which i don't really like doing so i'm just gonna quit and they do
1: yeah.
0: And then it gets to be a it, then it it gets to be really interesting because all of a sudden what I find is that therapists that I work with who come in and have sort of all the therapy problems, you know, they they don't take care of themselves very well. They don't exercise, they don't eat well, they don't sleep adequately. They um they how they're kind of full of self-doubt and self-recrimination and they feel like frauds and they uh, just, you know, on and on and on. I mean, you, you know, I mean, you were with therapists too. You kind of know how sort of the the profile, you know, they're, they're either overwhelmed or burned out or, you know, or, or they're so cold that they just, they're not letting anybody get to them anymore. Get past that, you get to the bottom of some of this stuff and that a lot of the defenses start evaporating. And all of a sudden, all of that stuff goes because that's all kind of defensive Mm. and it's, it's all kind of there to keep from, keep the therapist from having to deal with their pain. Well, if you deal with your, if you've dealt with your own pain, then you don't need to have all that stuff. And so all that stuff's gone. And then all of a sudden what happens is I, I have somebody that I've worked with for a while that I don't hear from for a few months. And then all of a sudden I get an email from them. Um, do you have some time this week because something's come up and I'm starting to feel some of this stuff again. And it, and because I haven't in a couple of months, I know that there's something going on, but I can't put my finger on it. Can you help me? Boy, that's rewarding. That's, that's a lot of fun.
1: Mm. Yeah. So it sounds like you're talking about how the lack of self care that Therapists can be guilty of, you know, kind of putting everyone else's needs first and not taking care of what we need can, we all know that can lead to burnout and compassion fatigue and secondary traumatic stress and all those things. So once the therapist actually processes the emotions that they were stuck with, that were being triggered by their work with clients, then they're able to show up more effectively, authentically, probably more ethically in their work with the client.
0: Yeah, I think that's really well said. I I think that's exactly what happens. Sounds wonderful. And And I have to say, I have this... I'm one of these people that sort of I look around and say, well, somebody needs to do this. And if nobody else is doing it, then I think, well, then shoot, I need to do it. And one of the things that I kind of realized along the way is that therapists really are in the perfect position to change the world they really are they have people coming to them who are already motivated to change that are wanting to do something different and and we know i mean just if if we're therapists we know that when you when one person changes there's a huge multiplier because that person is in contact with all the people at their work all the people in their family all the extended relationships their community You know, if they uh, if they go to church, if their kids go to school, then everything multiplies. But we tend to not we tend to disavow that and we tend to not be very effective at helping people change in really fundamental ways. And so part of my thinking is, no, we need to become much more intentional about what we're doing and become much better about helping people change in very deep ways that significantly impact all of those families and schools and churches and and communities and whatever because that's how that's how we really can make the world a better place and we're in the position to do it we just and we actually at this point i think the research is reasonably clear about what we need to do we're just not doing it and part of that is because as a group we sort of hold ourselves back from from changing by not being willing to explore some of the deeper stuff in our own past, in our own psyche. And as we resolve some of that stuff, then we become much, much more powerful at helping people change.
1: Yeah. It's like things become just more clear. You can see things more clearly, and it's like, oh, (laughs) There's not all this stuff getting in the way. <laughs> right. So let's talk a, kind of in practical terms about how you do adept psychology with therapists. Um, I know from your website that it's a virtual program.
0: That's correct. As far as the trainings, that's all. That stuff's online. There's videos and and a online forum and there's a capacity for online communication like group meetings or whatever if we if we find that that's a helpful or important we can do a google hangout or something and kind of get a hold of each other as far as the the coaching part of it the experiential part of it that is pretty much done through Skype and you know some through email but but very much that's the the idea of that is that we really want to do things in kind of real time and and sort of start following following rabbit trails and so forth because we really want to to dig some of this stuff out
1: and you can help me explain so that people who are listening, if they might be interested in getting, you know, getting into the program or getting more information, you have the eight-week course. That's the foundation. And that's then, correct. Is there another eight-week course that follows that, or do they do the coaching next, or is it parallel?
0: Yeah, they, I I like to do them in parallel. I think people get the most out of i the way i've the way i conceptualize it there's um, there's sort of five steps there's a this foundation which is a a first 8 week course which just kind of covers the basics of how how emotions work how people get stuck uh, how to get them unstuck what we're what we're looking for in terms of being unstuck. The second, on the other side of it, the, the intro thing is, um, we've got transformation and, and that's really about helping people. That's the, that's the experiential coaching program. And then the third piece is, is another training, which is, uh, application it's an implementation kind of thing of here's techniques and this is how we're going to get at things. And then once people sort of have themselves together and they understand how people work and they have the technique, then the fourth thing is, is integration. And that's really a, that's about putting it together. And, and that's really uh, very much a, a therapy-focused kind of supervision program, and then the last, which we haven't done yet, but I've hauled out the the option of doing a fifth at some point, which is certification, and that's if people get to that spot.
1: So people so, could. So far, we've
0: got people that are up to the the integration level. We've got people who have been through all of that other that other good stuff and and really have have gotten where they're they're very they've made some significant personal changes and and have learned to apply a lot of this stuff to their clients and are are beginning to really make some significant changes in other people's lives
1: And then they'll potentially when people get to that stage, when some of your people kind of complete or graduate, so to speak, from the integration process, then the certification process becomes an option. That's right. That's very cool. I'm so glad we talked about this because, like I said, I wanted to understand what it was. And I know we've talked before. And I just didn't quite get it. Um, I think I thought it was coaching. I didn't get the the focus or the the exact process the way I do feel I understand it now. So I really appreciate you explaining all of that and I think that people who are listening are gonna be interested and hopefully some of them might want to check it out because to me, you know, the therapist's self awareness and insight is the most important thing happening in the therapy session without that. None of the other good work can really take place.
0: Yeah, I think we one the one piece of research that is the most clear and it's, we keep seeing it over and over and over again, but it's this thing that we neglect the most, the, you know, for a long time, we had this idea that, well, this kind of therapy is better than that kind of therapy. Yeah. You know, this brand is better than that brand. And and what the research started showing was that it really wasn't true, that there was very little difference in between the, the mean cognitive behavior therapist and the mean psychodynamic therapist and the mean um emotion focused therapist in terms of their results, but what we started learning is that there's a huge amount of variance between people in different schools it, well within the school and and so you'd have somebody who typically what happens is that the the people who are not very good therapists are really good at cognitive behavior therapy for instance they're they're very good at doing exactly what cognitive behavior therapy says they should do but nothing more mm. and so they are not re- there are so they're sort of effective with some people but they're not very effective with a lot of people and and that's true with psychodynamic therapists or, you know, any, anybody else, any school of therapy, but the really good therapists of every school really start, they look a lot alike. And and so the question is, what do they look like? And what's the difference between the good ones and the crummy ones or the not as good ones, I guess you'd say, and it really the biggest thing is it turns out is really the person of the therapist it's how well the therapist herself is put together and that's something that you can't you can't teach somebody you can't sit somebody down in grad school and teach them how to put themselves together that's really much more experiential and yeah. the the therapists, you know, we've, we have a lot of schools have, the, you know, requirements that, oh, well, you have to be in your own therapy and so forth. But if your therapist is at the spot where the best that the therapist is able to give you is is coping and acceptance and maybe even insight, that's still – short of where you need to be. It's still not at the spot where you have, you can love that part of yourself and have compassion for that part of yourself because that's really, that's a couple steps past insight and it's way past coping. Just in terms of the, the complexity and purity of the emotional experience. And so it's just, if you come in to the world wanting to be loved completely, you have to get people back to that spot of being loved completely before they can undo all the damage that they've done to themselves and that other people have inadvertently done to them.
1: That's pretty deep. And I think that I really hope That people who are listening to this, that some people, whether, um, therapist or someone who's been a therapy client or is going to become a therapy client will really think about that and, and, you know, really consider what that means because it's not what we're kind of culturally taught programmed to do, but it is what we are wired to do. So as humans. And so, you know, it's like, there's something missing. That's what it is. (laughs) And it's, it's pretty amazing that you've been able to put this together. I think it sounds wonderful. And it's also like, kind of reassuring, because even when you talked about how our grad schools, some of them require the students to get therapy. Well, so in theory, it's like, well, I had therapy. But that doesn't mean that you have gotten to that part of yourself that, you know, you've been protecting so carefully and believes that, you know, the self is not lovable. Um, You may have had therapy, but it doesn't mean you got there and, and worked through that. So if you haven't worked through that, then, you know, what you're doing when you're with clients may not be you may not be able to take them where you're trying to take them.
0: You're not going to take them where they come to therapy wanting to go. I I, I have sort of a, a one of my heuristics, I guess, and I kind of struggle with how to say this, and it kind of came to me maybe about a year ago, year and a half ago. It, nobody comes to therapy because they want to cope with their crappy life better. <laughs> and and that's really they, they come to therapy because they they want to have a good life yeah. but unfortunately it's like way too often I think that's what we give them we help them cope with a crappy life better and that part of that is because that's the best we know how to do we personally know how to do or think we know how to do. It's all that we're willing to to do because just like everybody else, we have all of our own fears and insecurities and sensitivities. And, and we're scared as therapists that, oh my God, you know, our clients are going to figure out that we don't know what we're doing. (laughs) Well, yeah, you know, and there's a there's a piece of it. I mean, it, as a therapist, I, I just I will just say that most of the time, I don't know what I'm doing. I I, I go into therapy and I, and it's like, what are you planning to do today? I have no idea. I have no idea. I'm going to see what the client presents, and yeah. then I'm just going to work from there. Yeah. Because the the client knows the client knows where they need to go. I don't know where the client needs to go and where the where the client wants to go is, and the way that they want to go there is m- much smarter and much more elegant than anything that I could have possibly thought up for them. So my job is to just help them get out of their own way so they can do that.
1: Yeah, and the... Therapist who's so defended because they're not in touch with their own inner self can't relax and just let it go where it's going to go and, and respond with what comes naturally, what needs to happen, you know, what comes intuitively <clears throat> to the therapist in that session. They're more, oh, no, they're talking about this, you know. I feel activated, you know, and like dealing with their own trying to regulate themselves and, you know, maybe not even consciously, but just trying to cope with their own feelings in the session instead of being able to just go with the client where the session is going and, you know, create something together that is really meaningful at the end of the, the session and at the end of the therapy process too
0: right yeah i i think there's a i think you you nailed it i think there's an an awful lot of that that goes on you know if our job is to help the the client get out of their own way then certainly if we're getting into their way you know now there's two people in their way
1: yeah and we're in our own way
0: and we're in our own way exactly (laughs) and you know it that's a, the first thing you that, and, and one of the things I teach in when I teach technique is there's there's some techniques I I use about sort of how to how to structure some of your interventions, and and one of the principles of that is that an awful lot of times, um, people therapists and, and we all do this, and it's because it's the way people talk, but we we start telling people what we don't want them to do. Mm. And it's, and it's like it's programming them to do that (laughs) because at a, at a certain level, you one thing that Freud discovered over a hundred years ago and nobody's ever contradicted is that, when you look at unconscious processing, the unconscious really doesn't understand. There's a few things that the unconscious doesn't understand. And one of them is negatives and another one is death. You and, and the third one is time. There's no past, present, and future in the unconscious. It's all the present. There's no death in the unconscious. There's no such thing as no. Everything is possible if you look at what the the swamis and gurus and so forth have been telling us for 4,000 years. They tell you that that's actually the nature of reality, that there's no death and there's no time. That doesn't mean that that Freud's right or that they're right. But it's interesting that they kind of everybody came to the same conclusion. But one of the things that we do is we start when we start telling people what we don't want them to do. Well, don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. It's like you're programming them to think about doing that and then think about, oh, I can't do that. And you're just making your life as a therapist much more difficult when you do that. You just get in your own way. You get in your client's way and you get in your own way. And you can take somebody who could have maybe finished therapy in a few weeks and you turn it into an unending process that way.
1: And the point you brought up earlier about how much of the reason people come to therapy has something to do with control. If the therapist is saying, don't do this, don't do that. You just, it's another power struggle. It's another control issue.
0: Yes, it is. That's correct. And it's, and it's much easier to, to find out what the client wants to do and find ways to, encourage them to find ways to do that in productive and pro-social ways that further their relationships and further their aims in life in general. That's what people want. People want to live a good life. They don't want to cope with a crappy life.
1: Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, on that note, if you can tell us your website, and I will also list this in the notes for this episode, Um, I'm sure that some people are going to want to check out more about what you have going on.
0: Okay, sure. I'm at um, adeptpsychology.com. That's just like it sounds. A-D-E-P-T-P-S-Y-C-H-O. O-L-O-G-Y dot com.
1: Awesome. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to explain all of that to me and to whoever's listening. Um, I'm really excited about what you have going on. And now that I really understand, really, really get what it is, um, I think, you know, I know some people who might be interested in getting in touch and I'll be I'll be talking it up. So thank you so much for being here today,
0: Steve. Uh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me, Laura. I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to the Baltimore Annapolis Psychotherapy Podcast with Laura Reagan, LCSWC. For more, visit Laura's website com.